I'm Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's good to see you all. I'm glad I get to be here and uh, teach the Bible for the first time in a little while. Uh, I went to the dentist for the first time in like six years, a couple of weeks ago. So sorry if you're a dentist. Um, I'm just pointing to you. So there's that. But I was trying to take my toddler to the dentist, and I thought, you know, if I'm going to take him to the dentist, I got to go dentist too. And I went there, and it was exactly what I expected it was going to be. You know, it was like, welcome back. Where have you been? Uh, you haven't been doing what you should be doing, and uh, you're disappointing to me. <laughs> you know, so, so, and I kind of thought, you know, I bet that's how a lot of people feel showing up to church sometimes. You know, welcome back. Where have you been? Oh, you haven't been doing what you should be doing. Uh, be better. See you next time. You know, that's, uh, everyone come to church. I'm sure there's some folks in this room who are like, yeah, that's what it feels like. That's why I only come here every six months because I come and be told, you know, and so then uh, the lady was telling me, you know, you're teeth are going to fall out if you don't do what I say. And I was like, that's what they told me six years ago, still have teeth, you know, so. <laughs> and so then I asked her, I was just being, you know, I always say, can I ask you a personal question, which by the way, people always say sure to that. So <laughs> you get a license. Can I ask you a personal question? And I said, how many, what percentage of people that you, do you think actually listen to what you say on like the floss every day and stuff? And she got really offended by that. <laughs> I don't know, 25%, so 30%. And I was like, no, yeah, sounds about right. So, but it's weird. Like this, like I find myself going to the dentist. I know I'm going to be told you're not the way you should be. You're not doing what you should be doing. I feel my blood pressure going up, you know, going, preparing for the shame moment where they're like, so often do you floss? And I'm like, less than you want me to. Like, how often is that exactly? And I'm like, last time I was at the dentist, I floss. <laughs> So I don't floss. Someone flosses me every <laughs> But I know I shouldn't be this way. I know it's not right. I'm not like defending it. You know, I'm being a hypocrite telling my son to floss and brush his teeth. I, br I do brush my teeth. Um, <laughs> but I'm like prepared. I'm preparing for the shame. I'm preparing. And like I feel my, they took, for some reason, this dentist takes my blood pressure before we do it. And I was like, I was like, I had hypertension, like 145 over 90, something like that. And those of you who know what that is, it's like, not good for someone my age, and so, but I could feel, I could feel the shame moment coming, and I feel like we feel like that a lot of times when it comes to, like, measuring the strength of our faith to Jesus. You know, I don't think anybody's like, my faith is right where it should be. Uh, I'm afraid of all the right things. I'm not afraid of all the wrong things. Uh, I, you know, I walk straight. I talk right. I do all the right stuff with my money. I do all the right stuff with my sexuality. I do all the right stuff with my mind. I'm, I'm angry at the stuff that God's angry about, but I'm compassionate about the stuff that God's compassionate about. You know, and so I do think there's like this like kind of gap between how we think we should be and how we think we are that we walk around with all the time. And I imagine that in certain environments, like I remember going to men's small groups in high school, and I was like, everyone sits in a circle, and it's just going to be a who's it's just going to, we, we all hate each other. We, hate, we all hate ourselves meeting, right? It's like, how many of you struggle this week? Okay, see you next week, you know, for the whip yourself party, you know, and is that, is that kind of what church is? You know, everyone spends all week being bad, and they show up here, and you feel worse about it because you hear about what you're not supposed to be, and I think about these guys in this text, you know, their name's Joseph of Arimathea, but we're going to call him Joe because he's just a person, not some fancy person, you know, and Nicodemus, which we're going to call him Nick, and they're just normal guys, Joe and Nick trying to do their life, you know, one's a businessman, one's a tax guy, 
and here you have these fearful followers of Jesus. And I kind of think, like, how, how much of us are like average Joe and nobody Nick here? After these days, Joe, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of fear of the Jews. Right? We all have these places where we're probably secret disciples. Right? At least when you meet someone for the first time, there's like this moment where you're like feeling them out. Uh, and some, you can feel them feeling you out. Is this person a Christian? Are they an LDS person? Are they an atheist? You know, and you kind of, you read the signs, read the cues, and there's like the coming out moment. I go to church, and it's like, oh, which type of church? And it's like, and we have moments where we're courageous, moments where we're weak. And here you have these guys who are known. So Joseph everything he he was afraid of the Jews. And the reason we know he's afraid of the Jews is because probably he later on told John, I was a secret disciple for a while. Because he could have just told people, oh, I became a disciple after the resurrection when everybody else did. But he seemed like he had known for a while Jesus was the real deal, but he had this like fear in his heart. And you have Nicodemus who previously came by night because he was doing it secret. So these two secret disciples, afraid of the public opinion, afraid of the crowd. And what shocks me about this little scriptures here, this little text, it's just five verses, is how not shamey it is with these two guys. Right? He was a secret disciple, but not anymore. It wasn't like a, but then finally he stopped being a spineless loser and spoke up. Finally, Nicodemus got over his cowardice and, you know, put on his big boy pants and follow Jesus in the daylight. Like, it's not, but I think a lot of times we expect uh, kind of the dentist treatment, right? Welcome, you're not the way you should be. Be better. See you next time. But just the gentleness here that John and the Spirit through John is talking about these guys. And there's like this honor here. And it's pretty significant what this text talks about. This is like one of those little texts where I feel like when I've have read the Bible in the past, it's like Jesus dies, boring, re- irrelevant details, and then he's risen. Right? This is like the boring, irrelevant details section. It feels like that. Who cares how many pounds of whatever stuff they dumped on the body? Like, get to the good part. He's resurrected. Yay, right? That's a, uh, but it's really not irrelevant. And I want to see why it's relevant. But here's like the thing I want us to like take away from this is there's like this little bit of courage that these guys show. And it takes a lot more faith for them than we may initially realize. But it makes a ginormous difference in the trajectory of the gospel. Just a little courage. It took a tremendous amount of faith. It makes a really big difference, and we see that here in this text. And so I want to pray, and I hope we walk out with that, right? Not just with some more facts about what happened, but that we can really grab onto the fact that a little bit of courage sometimes takes a lot of faith, but makes a really big difference. So let me pray, and then we'll walk us through some more. Jesus, have mercy on us. I do ask that uh, there are ways in which all of us I know are sort of like Joe and Nick here, and I know that a lot of us are always like them. I ask that you'll help us see what they saw and change like they changed and help us be patient with ourselves in that process. Amen. Amen. So, a little after these things, Joseph Arimathea. So, this guy, Joseph Arimathea, shows up in all four Gospels. 
which is kind of interesting, because there's a lot of things that aren't in all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it, what you kind of learn about him is that he's pretty wealthy and he's pretty afraid. I want to read some of the other accounts, so I'm going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's what Matthew says about Joseph of Arimathea. When it was evening, there came a rich man. So he's rich, right? Jesus hadn't been super uh, gentle with rich people in his teaching so far, right? If you're if you're rich, it's harder for you to get in heaven than camel through the eye of the needle. So I imagine Joseph at a distance is like, ooh, this guy, I don't know, he's pretty rich. Um, named Joseph, who's also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body. So he goes to Pilate, goes to power. So he, apparently Pilate probably knew who this guy was. So he's prominent, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's and part of this uh, uh, big deal, and he ends up wrapping the body and, and burying it. Go, let's go to um, Mark, Matthew, Mark. Go to the next text. And when the evening had come, since there was a day of preparation, that day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. So he's not just powerful, but he's like got this position uh, where his voice is considered. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's what uh, nowadays we'd call the elite. He's uh, at the table with the big dogs. Member of the council also took, who's looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate. So he didn't just have access to Pilate, but also I imagine Pilate was kind of a scary guy to approach, right? He's in the habit of having people crucified. So to take a little courage of going to Pilate, say, hey, give me the body. I like the body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he'd already died because he expected it to be longer. Let's go to Luke. We'll check that out there. Um, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to the decision. So he is on the council. The council's all voting, kill Jesus. And he's like on the council saying, I don't think that's a good idea. But at this point, he's still kind of, a, he's not saying, I don't think we should kill him. I'm a disciple of him. He's just saying, I don't think we should kill him. It's probably unjust. So he's doing his best to use his position to lobby for what he thought was right. But the council goes the other direction. He's in the minority vote. So he's on the outskirts. He's on the fringe. He's in the minority position on a justice ruling coming down. He says, I don't think we should do it. And then after he's dead, he goes to Pilate and asks for the body. So we got Joseph, who's a secret disciple, rich, powerful, prominent, at the table, and he's not consenting to the unjust killing of Jesus. Now, take a step back here for a minute. He's got all the power, all the privilege, all the position, all the stuff that kind of enable you to get stuff done. He tries to spend some of that to get Jesus not killed. Jesus ends up still getting killed. And all to this point, he's kind of been an in-the-closet follower of Jesus. And you got to know, like, you first read this, and you're like, man, secret follower of Jesus. It's easy to stand in judgment of this guy. Come on, man, what's going on? What are you afraid of? Well, he knows what he's afraid of. He's afraid of what's happening to Jesus happening to him. It's real fear. He's afraid of something real. It's not irrational fear. It's fear located in reality. I'm sure that there are folks in this room, I know some of you, like you're in some type of corporate position and if like you got found out as holding some of the beliefs you have, it'd be bad for your career. I'm sure that if you kind of went full public with your whole doctrinal statement on X, Y, and Z, you'd have a lot of meetings with HR or whatever get re-educated or something. I'm sure some folks, even like with family members, there's some beliefs you hold and you hold them maybe this tight or this tight, but either way, you're kind of like, eh, you know, do I spend my relational capital here? Do I save it up and maybe cash it in later when it really matters? Where do I spend my influence, right? Because it's, you think about being wealthy, we know how to steward wealth, right? You give it, you invest it. But then there's like influence, which is different. Sometimes you spend your influence and it's just gone forever. 
you burn that bridge, it's, you're not getting it back. And so how do we, how do we steward our, not just our wealth, but our influence? And there's that power here. So even if you're not a wealthy person, you have some influence in trying to figure out where do you spend it, where do you invest it, where do you hold it, where do you let it go? Parenting teenagers, parenting folks in their 20s, you, this is like constant tension. When do I speak? When do I stay silent? When am I secret? When am I public? I know some folks who I would say are like unhealthily public. Like uh, some of that was funny. <laughs> you know, because it's easy to feel tough, right? You're tough online. Mean comments put a rude bumper sticker on your car, understanding of the gospel, do you follow Jesus this close? Do you feel that exhaust? That exhaust isn't as hot as hell, you know, like, um, I think I've shared the story before, like, I remember talking to a guy who had a big sign up, said, you know, yoga pants wears, masturbators, fornicators go to hell at ASU, he's out there preaching, the, bringing the good news to the lost, you know. He's like the worst salesman in history, you know, but you know, I remember I took him to lunch and I was like, hey, tell me about how you started being a preacher, you know, and it ends up, he has all this like unresolved childhood trauma of being unliked, being unincluded, not being on the out, you know, had a hard time keeping and maintaining friendships, no real close connections, and then he hears about this guy who's hated named Jesus, and he goes, hey, that guy's kind of like me, and then he ends up kind of going, oh, here's this verse about, hey, if they hated Jesus will hate me too. And then he, you know, it's all this like externalization of going, maybe instead of people not liking me for me and having to deal with that is really hard. So instead I'll just have them not like me for Jesus. I'll be a street preacher. Oh, that's why they don't like me is because I tell them that they're going to hell. He didn't come to those conclusions himself, but I tried to help him see that was going on. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes it's like overly public, you know, and it's like, it feels like there's, like the lack of intimacy, lack of personal work, lack of, because it's one thing to be rude and callous to a stranger. It's nothing to look someone in the eye that you know and love with intensity and see them move towards them. Like Blake does this really well. Blake's like one of the most unashamed Jesus guys I know. And he like, he's not like lobbing grenades at you from across the room. He like sees you, moves up close, draws you out, connects. Right, that's a lot harder to do than just megaphoning it from the corner. You know what I mean? And so there's like this kind of unhealthy public thing, then there's like this I'm in secret, I don't know what's going on thing. But here you have these two guys, Joseph and Nick, and they're working through it. And something they see, right? Because one of the questions you see is, oh, so Jesus is dying, he's died, he's on the cross. Uh, Joseph goes and has a tomb cut. One of the texts says that um, he had an ha- order to have a tomb cut for him. This is what's pretty significant about this is, is uh, it costs a lot of money to get buried like this, right? I got this book that I read during our two weeks to slow the spread, Dominion, right here, and I just want to read it real quick, a section of it. And so I've, just a kind of fact about me is I tend to read really boring history books at night, like get like two, three pages, and I fall asleep. And so <laughs> it's my, uh, I don't need to do that now because I'm a newborn and I just fall asleep anyway. So I, uh, but I'm going to read the section of it, all right, so... Nerd with me here, okay? Rome's first heated swimming pool was built on the Escaline Hill. The location just outside the city's ancient walls was a prime one. In time, it had become a showcase for the wealthiest people in the world, an immense 
expanse of luxury villas and parks. But there was a reason why the land beyond the Escaline Gate had been left undeveloped for so long. For many centuries, from the very earliest days of Rome, had been a place of the dead. When laborers first began to work on the swimming pool, the corpse stench hung in the air and wouldn't leave. The ditch was littered with carcasses of the poor who were laid to rest in mass graves. Vultures picked the bodies clean. It had always been the place set aside for the execution and disposal of slaves. Exposed to the public view, the slabs of human meat hung from the meat from the market stalls as troublesome slaves were nailed to crosses and put on display. No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulder and chest, helpless to beat away the clamoring birds. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. Naturally, it was chosen to serve as a deterrent, and it needed to be public. Nothing spoke more eloquently of a failed revolt than the sight of bodies by the hundreds hanging on crosses, lining the highways or else massed before some rebellious city, the city hills having been stripped bare of their trees to be turned into crucifixes. The corpses of the crucified, once they had first provided picking for hungry birds, tended to be flung into common graves. Undertakers dressed in red, ringing bells along as they went, would drag them there on hooks. This was part of the fate, the shameful mass grave. Four detailed accounts of the process by which a man might be sentenced to the cross and then suffer the punishment have survived to us from antiquity. A crucifixion that took place some 60 or 70 years after the building of that heated swimming pool. The victim, a Jew by the name of Jesus, a wandering preacher from an obscure town named Nazareth in a region north of Jerusalem named Galilee, had been convicted of a capital offense against the Roman order. After his death, a spear was jabbed into his side, and there is no reason to doubt the essentials of this narrative. Even the most skeptical of historians have tended to accept them. Decidedly not the common lot of multitudes, however, was the fate of Jesus' corpse. Lowered from the cross, it was spared a common grave. Claimed by a wealthy admirer, he was prepared reverently for burial, laid in a tomb, and left behind a heavy boulder. These accounts are not implausible. It's atheist historian Tom Holland writing about the way the Romans killed people. What happens if Joseph of Arimathea, the secret disciple, the wealthy, powerful, afraid of the Jews one, doesn't put his money where his heart was, buy a rock, have a tomb cut out of it, take the courage step up to the plate, ask Pilate for the body. What happens? 1 Corinthians 15, gospel of first importance, and he was buried. Nicene Creed, and he was buried. Apostles' Creed, and he was buried. If you don't have the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, you don't have the body buried. You don't have the stone rolled away. You don't have resurrection. You have a corpse picked apart by the birds thrown into a mass grave, dragged by a hook down the street. Isaiah 53 talks about a man who's going to suffer for the sins, but then still be buried like a rich man. Prophecy is fulfilled here in this text. 
One of the things you have to do when you read this text is you go, just two chapters ago, you had Peter sword out, ready to take on the Romans, cutting off an ear like an uncoordinated weirdo. <laughs> Where's Peter? Jesus is dying. He's dead. Where's the public disciple, right? Peter could be like that unhealthy, overly public guy. He's like, let's get him. Oh, things aren't going well. Never mind. Deny, deny, deny. Here we have Joseph sees something. Nicodemus, who had previously come by night, bring a mixture of myrna aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. You don't need to be a chemist to know that's a lot of smelly good stuff. Expensive. Huge amounts of capital are invested. They took the body of Jesus, these two guys, wrapped it, bound it, and gave him a good Jewish burial. They gave the one executed as an example the dignity of the Jewish ceremony and process. Lay him down, cut a new tomb, verse 41, which no one had yet been laid, Joseph's tomb. So what, what did Joseph and Nicodemus see? What's captivating to them? What grabs their hearts? What helps them go in this moment from being secret disciple to public disciple? What helps them go from I'm in the closet to I'm out of the closet? What helps them go from uh, timid at a distance to I'm going to the most powerful person in the room and saying, give me the body, I'll take care of it. Identifying himself with the rebel who's threatening the Roman order. What, what happens here? What changes? What moves? What shakes? Right, because later on we're going to see that these disciples who got all cowardly all of a sudden see the risen Lord, and that's what changes their mind. They see the empty tomb, and that's what changes their mind. But this is one of the things that's beautiful to us as followers of Jesus, is that different things grab the hearts and imaginations of different people. Something about these poor disciple, fishermen, have-nothing people see victory and resurrection. And they're like, that's, that's what I need to see. And then you have these powerful, wealthy, prestigious people see this man mocked, hanging on a cross, and they see his resolve. They see his commitment. They see him silent. They see him not reviling yet when reviled. They see him faithfully carrying through to the point of losing his own life. And they go, I can't even have the courage to speak up on a boardroom. And here's this guy having courage, tortured to death, hung out to dry, and he's praying for these people who are killing him. See, sometimes it's the weakness of Christ that captures us. And I think for the, those of us in this room who are probably more like Joseph of Arimathea than like it's kind of the Peter, meaning you I think Redemption Gateway, in contrast with a lot of churches in the world, there's probably a lot more Joes and Nicks in the room who are relatively wealthy, relatively powerful, relatively in control of our lives. There's something about seeing the suffering weakness of God Most High that should stir our hearts differently than even just resurrection. Because some people, their life seems like win after win after win, and sometimes their life feels like loss after loss after loss, and it's the contrast of Jesus that I think grabs us and takes hold of us. But here's what's crazy to me, is Joseph somehow identifies with Christ, sees him risen at some point, and has to go around telling people, Right, because you don't know what's going on in someone else's heart. I can't look at someone and be like, 
you're a fear of the Jews secret disciple. <laughs> I can't read people's hearts. But Joseph notices the fear. He names the fear. I was afraid of the rejection of my peers. But then I saw Christ crucified and my fears were alleviated. Nicodemus has, has to say, I went and saw Jesus under cover of darkness because I was afraid or ashamed of seeing him and being, I'd publicly identify with him. But seeing him crucified gave me the courage that I needed to step forward and be part of his burial. I saw him and I, this is like one of the miracles of courage. Is where does it come from? Do you manifest it? Do you drum it up? Do you just command it from heaven? Or does it kind of come from outside of you and all of a sudden you have it? This is part of the miracle of faith is to do this calculus of going, I'm willing to be publicly ridiculed, abandoned, or ashamed, or mocked for the sake of something else. To do that type of economics is supernatural, right? How can I lose a bunch of money and be shamed publicly and lose my position of prestige all in one swing? You do what Joseph Arimathea did and what Nicodemus did. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? And this is where I think the captivating, heart-grabbing nature of Christ crucified and risen gets us is when you see him as he is, that all of a sudden becomes like a good idea. All of a sudden it seems sane. It seems smart. It seems right. It seems sober. Whereas before it seemed nuts. And so here's, here's my heart for us. It's like, uh, so, you know, we have a six-week-old and it was a lot of chaos. You know, we got to hospital eight and it was like flicking anthill kind of situation, all the ants running around, you know, looking. And baby's born at 8.15. She came out just like her brother, screaming like she was showing off her lungs. Ah, 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 you know, and unrelenting, unrelenting, unrelenting. And all the nurses, doctors are all kind of, flying around because we hadn't signed our waivers, you know, because we got there so fast and all this stuff going on. Can't get any IV in, can't get chaos, 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 screaming, screaming, screaming. And, you know, they take Olivia out, put her on Taylor. She continues to scream, 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 you know, pees. And it's like, okay, good timing, lady. You know, and so then get her cleaned up and then she's screaming, screaming, screaming. They go and take over and they start doing all the checks or whatever. And uh, I remember walking over to a little side while she's screaming, all the nurses are yelling and talking over each other. And she's still just yelling, 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 yelling. And I just kind of leaned up close to her, looking like, you know, a little, barely looks human, alien creature, <laughs> newborn. And said, Olivia. And she stopped crying and turned her head and opened her eyes and looked right at me. And I was like, everyone in the room all of a sudden got really quiet. Because they'd been quiet for the first time in like 30 minutes. It went from Taylor screaming to Olivia screaming, you know. And, <laughs> and it was like she heard a voice she'd recognized. And all this chaos, all this clamoring, you know, just calm down. And I've been thinking about that in my own heart. 
There's all this messaging, all this yelling, all these things to be afraid of, all these concerns, dragging and pulling and councils and chambers and, and economics and all these factors and all these concerns. And it's like, but in the moments where I sense the Father's voice saying, Seth, I feel my blood pressure drop. I feel like I know what I'm supposed to do. And the, that's, those are the moments when this, the extra human courage is there. Going, I'm, I'm all of a sudden able to disappoint the right people. I'm all of a sudden able to do the hard thing. I'm all of a sudden able to say no to the sin. I'm all of a sudden... And so it's when we hear the Father speaking to us. He says, my son, my daughter. And some of the clamoring stops. And the faith that's required, for the courage that's required, for the moment, our little moment, to step forward to Pilate, I'll take the body, to, send, to open the bank, to buy the thing, to invest the money. To, that these are the moments when our trajectory of our lives are altered, when the lives of others are altered, when God's using us, when we're participating in what he's doing in the world. It's not when we're shamed into saying, have no fear, be better, do different. See you next time. <laughs> it's moments when we're actually in our hearts sensing the Father by the Spirit calming us and calling us into what he's calling us to do. And so the reason I love this text is largely because every time I've read it, I've read it as irrelevant details until the good part. But more and more I see myself and I see Redemption Gateway that we are these average Joes and these nobody Nicks. We are these people who are pulled by a variety of sources and voices and powers and people. We are the people who for fear of blank sometimes don't do what we're supposed to be doing. Fear of missing out. Fear of discomfort. Fear of disapproval. Fear of poverty. Fear of insecurity. Fear of loss of control. And I'm hoping that we can see the resolve and the resilience of Jesus crucified and hear the Father's voice telling us who we are and that will give us the courage that's required that took a lot of faith that will actually make a pretty big difference. So I want to pray for us. I want to pray for our church that we can be followers like Joseph who start off going, I'm not sure about this. But then something happens in our hearts that we take that step forward and we go from being secret to being public. Let me pray. Jesus, I ask that you would quiet our hearts, that you'd calm our nerves. I pray that we who have a lot of power, a lot of assets, a lot of influence, that we'd see the, uh, the locations and the places that we are like Joseph Arimathea, we're like Nicodemus. And God, I ask that we would not feel shame for that. Father, we know that you're patient with us. We know that you're kind to us and it's your gentleness that's gonna actually lead us. God, I do ask that we would hear your voice, that we'd be captivated, that our hearts would see the reality of who you are and how you're leading us. And God, give us that courage it takes to take that next step like Joseph did. Jesus, thank you for Joseph of Arimathea and how you worked through him. How because of his actions, you got a tomb. Because of your spirit's actions, you didn't stay in that tomb. Amen.